I'm on my way back from the 2018 Cities United convening in Knoxville, Tennessee. It was a wonderful weekend of fellowship and love and support and information. Uh, the network has now grown to incorporate or to include 130 mayors and is still growing. Uh, and it was just a wonderful week. Uh, one of the things I want to do with experiences like this is take advantage of opportunities to sit down and speak with folk that inspire me. And I got to do that with a, a friend, Ricky Aiken, who I met this year and is someone that's just a wonderful example. So um, part of the ambient sound, I'm actually in the Charlotte airport about to board my plane, but I wanted to get these out um, and keep this project going. So without further ado, conversation with Ricky Aiken. What's going on, man? Chilling, man. Excited to be here, bro. How you doing? Man, I'm good. It's been a great week. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, we met um, not so long ago, which is, which is interesting to think about. Um, but this is a new project, and I just I wanted to take advantage of folks that I encounter along the journey uh, to make sure we're being intentional, not only about our relationships, but learning from each other. And uh, I was just so impacted by um, your testimony and just getting to spend the time with you and the homies um, in Louisville. Yeah. So I'm glad we got to make this work, man. Absolutely, man. I remember you and I were on the way. We were to the airport heading to our respective flights, and I think we had, like, just... I feel like we had a moment where we shared more then than we had the entire Roadmap Academy that we were at, man. Yeah. And, um, it's good to just build on that, bro, build a more solid foundation. Absolutely, man. So uh, if you could, introduce yourself uh, and the work that you do, and, and we'll go from there. Yeah. Well, my name is Ricky Aiken. I'm the founder uh, and executive director of a nonprofit organization based in West Palm Beach called Inner City Innovators. And our mission is to inspire and empower inner city youth to embody the change they want to see in their community. Mm -hmm. So, so often you get people coming in and talking about the change that needs to happen there, and they totally skip the people who live the reality that most people want to see change. And I want to empower those young men to be that change before anybody comes in the science change to them. Yeah. How did you find your way into this work? Oh, man, I think it's, it's based on my own history, man. When I was growing up, my mom was addicted to crack cocaine. My father wasn't involved in my life. My older brothers were the neighborhood dope dealers, and my aunts and uncles were the addicts of the community. You know, I remember there were times where the most happiest times of the week for my little brother and I was when people would come to our apartment to smoke crack on the weekends because we knew that we'd have money to afford something to eat that time. So. A lot of what I do is based on my experience growing up in the hood that I'm from and wanting to make sure that young people going through that don't have to go through that alone again. Hmm. So given that kind of background, you talk about how you found your own way. Uh, how did you how did you navigate that, those realities? Uh, and then how did you find that you resonate with the kind of work you do now? I think at first, you know, I was just going through the motions. You know, I remember as early as third grade, I remember being labeled emotionally handicapped and just having a slow learning disability. So I felt like I was kind of resolved to become who my older brothers were. Like my um, oldest brother went to federal prison for his distribution of cocaine. My older brother, um, he first went to prison when he was 15 for shooting someone. So knowing that was in my family history, my my I feel like my choices in life were clear. I was, I was either going to um, sell dope or be on it. Hmm. And so I wanted to be like my older brother. So I remember as early as middle school associating myself with guys from the neighborhood who were uh, I identified as being like myself or coming from similar circumstances. 
And I remember connecting with them and our delinquency started out where we just start out stealing out of the neighborhood CVS or Walgreens to escalate into uh, 9th, 10th grade high school. We're going to parties, we're getting into fights. And those fights start now as fist fights to now people are getting access to firearms. So it may start in a fight, but it ended in being shot at or something like that. And I remember uh, looking back at that time, how in my heart, I was afraid. I was very afraid of being caught because I dropped out of school and I actually followed in my older brother's footsteps. I dabbled in the drug trade. I wasn't some big guy in the corner, but I sold dope for a little while because that's what I felt like my life was headed down. And I remember feeling in my heart, fear. Fear that I would get caught and uh, end up in prison. Fear that I would get shot, like many of my peers, or even worse, killed. Mm. And I remember feeling that fear, but you had to pretend that you weren't afraid. Mm. You know, you had to put on that you're, you're like you're about that life. Like I'm willing to do this and more, uh, regarding where I'm from. And what I portrayed on the outside betrayed who I was on the inside. It betrayed who you were. Exactly. Mm. And I feel like that's what a lot of young men growing up in these communities are going through where you got the culture and I can't blame the young people growing up in these communities for the culture. The culture was established before they were born. Mm -hmm. But you're coming up in a culture where you're forced to prove yourself by negative aspects of community life. You know, it's like you're being socially programmed down a road to self-destruction mm -hmm. rather that ends in imprisonment or death. And I didn't realize that until I got a little older. I had some people come into my life and um, believe in me before I ever began to believe in myself. And uh, those took the form of my godparents, Michael and Michelle Newsom, a pastor in my community. His name was Chris, uh, teaching me the word of God. And that spared me for many years. And there was an organization that um, brought me in as an intern and spending time around the staff there. Uh, the more time I spent with them, the less time I was spending in my social circles. Mm -hmm. And it was through my exposure to them that I realized that the life was much more diverse, much different than what I grew up believing it was. Because in the hood, things are one way. Mm -hmm. But outside of the hood, things go any way you want it to, depending on where you uh, assert your um, attention. Mm -hmm. So were you aware as these people came into your life and you started spending more time with them and other folks, that your life was changing? Or? Nah, I can't say I did. I feel like um, I feel like at the time I didn't understand what was happening. It was yeah. so like, it was just so weird, man. I remember like, especially with my godparents. My godparents at one point had to kick us out because, well, at least me, because I didn't understand the opportunity that was being presented to me. Mm -hmm. And that's like what anybody working with inner city young men, they'll go against the standard. They'll buck. They'll they'll find a way to fall out of that system because they don't believe they deserve it. And I went through that for many years. Um, that organization that hired me, probably, I remember one guy, he was my boss, his name was John. Um, and he had fired me probably about three or four times, no lie, but they'd always hired me back because they understood where I was coming from. So I believe like I had these um, environments that um, I was put in that allowed me to grow until I could realize the opportunity. but. Many young men don't get the opportunity to fail. Like when you think about young men that come from where we come from, you get one shot. And if you ruin that shot, it comes at a high price. Mm. You're either a convicted felon or you're so marred by your experiences that you find it hard to navigate mainstream society. So I feel like I had a lot of people in my life that kind of provided or became a protective bubble to me 
that um, I just providentially found the grace to figure it out before I had to pay the heftier price mm-hmm. for some of the things I believed at that time. You mentioned that some of these young people can um, can buck, yeah. um, can revolt a little bit yeah. against norms and systems, and you said that um, because they don't feel like they deserve it. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. Well, you got to think about the culture of the inner city. It's basically a reaction against society. They feel like society has uh, prepared institutions to hold them back and to suppress them. So the them, whole them so- specifically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the whole society of the inner city is in rebellion against that. It's in rebellion against mainstream um, society in general, but white society in particular. Uh, so you think about gold teeth, you think about pants sagging, you think of those things, and it flies in the face of general society at large, and that's for a reason. That's uh, intentional. It's a rebellion, and uh, kind of like a uh, like if you don't respect us or you don't acknowledge us, why would sh- why should we respect you and and acknowledge you yeah. uh, as a group? So participate participate right. in that. Why should we pers- exactly? Yeah. So it's like um, we are trying to find value in a world that doesn't value us, mm-hmm. and that's just the culture we grow up in. So that's that is the like a large part of how and why we do what we do in our communities. Yeah, it reminds me of of community meetings that I've uh, been a part of in Pittsburgh yeah. where you're aware of folks searching for and demonstrating the agency that they can find. Right. You know? And and sometimes um, there's a sense that, yeah, like the system's inaccessible almost. Right. And so this is what can be done. Right. Is come to this meeting and try to advocate or come to this meeting and uh, have a, have this this list of things to go through. Right. Um, so I think we see that in, in different spaces. Do you think that, that mainstream society uh, is white society uh, to this day? Like, it, is that how you would describe it to, to your young men? I think, I wouldn't say that's the way I'd describe it to them, but I know that's the way that they see it. I see. You know, because they're the, the like, you think about who's raising them, and it's people that's been victimized by that society at large, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the, they don't feel like the racial tension and discrimination has been dealt with. So their parents who probably have dealt with or were victims of mass incarceration are now teaching them how to see, see the world. Like, I remember when I was a kid, my grandmother um, raised me in a certain way, you know. She, like, literally taught me, like, how to lie to white folks, you know. She's like, you know, and excuse my French if I'm allowed to be Not real. No, please, please. But she said, you know, when you look them crackers in their eyes, you look them straight in their eyes when you lie, you know. You don't, you don't look on the ground. You don't look over here. You look them straight in their eyes when you have to lie to get yourself out of a situation. And so we were kind of brought into the world with kind of a racialized perspective, Hmm. a way that we felt like white people were the enemy. Any system that was brought about by mainstream society was the enemy to be used, um, to be uh, abused, and to be navigated at all costs, but never to be accepted. That's why you see people, like in the community, there's two spectrums. You know, you got people who we consider good people, they work, uh, they probably adhere to uh, middle class, mainstream values and things like that. And then you got street families that rail against everything um, that comes from that value in that society. And where you got kids growing up in these environments, even though they come from a decent or good family, they got to take on the characteristics of the hood mm-hmm. and the hood kids because that's the dominant worldview. Mm-hmm. So 
how do you resolve that? Uh, maybe maybe less of a of a large question in your own journey. Yeah. Coming from that environment, coming from those scenarios. Yeah. Uh, experiencing feeling that anger. Yeah. And that rejection and um, and rumbling yourself. Right. You know how have you evolved in your thinking of it as you've grown up, grown older? I think for me, you know, one of the like that organization that hired me on as an intern, it was a predominantly white organization, and. Um, their character proved to be opposite of what my grandmother taught me about white people mm. uh, for the most part. And I think that was a lot, experience was a large part of what kind of shifted my thinking and yeah. seeing them uh, care for me and love me in a way that I didn't think they were possible of doing. Wow. And um, so that had a major impact on me of breaking those paradigms. And then through that kind of process, as I continued to grow and learn about my situation, and I began to uh, be able to articulate it. I think what also helped me was seeing that, recognizing the power of my story, hmm. you know? And it started out in that, or they didn't do everything right. They did a lot right, but they didn't do everything right, where they would use my story to bring in money for the organization. And where I saw that people would respond to my story and what I had been through, and I realized there was power in what I've been through. And once I recognized there was power uh, in what I had been through in that context, I see, I sought to take that into other contexts. Yeah. If it was good amongst these white people who are willing to donate to these organizations, it's good in City Hall. Mm-hmm. It's good here. It's good there. Yeah. And I own that. And, um, and that's where my power came from. I began to explore that in different arenas in life. Yeah, the power of the testimony uh, yeah. can't be... Um understated and the week that we've had here with uh, cities united right is just a perfect example of that so these young men sharing their testimonies is just um incredible to encounter yeah. and you just it's, it's impossible for me to to be unmoved i find right just just hearing straight truth of, of yeah. experience uh so let's talk about hope dealers man like yeah. uh, first of all um how are you dealing hope and, and when you're trying to deal this hope how are you describing it to folks yeah well when I was growing up I felt like the only like I alluded to earlier where like where it was I was either gonna be a dope dealer or on dope yeah and like those were my options because though that's what my family presented to me uh now in my life um because of what I've been through and that I'm still here I don't have felonies I haven't been shot like many of my friends I'm not dead I feel like um I have a, a mission to give hope to the people coming through the circumstances that I was fortunately able to overcome. So that became my mission where young people don't have to choose like dope dealing because that's the only positive outcome for lives in our community, but they could choose to be a source of hope and showing a different direction that we don't have to succumb to those societal pressures. And the way I do that is through my organization, Inner City Innovators, and we have a mentoring program called Hope Dealer Mentoring. And it's a hybrid mentoring program that combines individual, group, and peer-to-peer mentoring. Mm. You know, where once a week we meet as a group, I'm meeting with guys one-on-one throughout the week, and my hope is to get these guys doing peer-to-peer mentoring groups in their schools, in the community, and I give them the support they need to make this happen. So hope looks like looking at who you are and where you come from, and instead of taking the negative track that your circumstances offer to you, it's choosing to see beyond that, choosing to use your story Instead of a reason to go down a dark path, 
as the reason you stay alight because you see people coming up in those similar circumstances that need your story to to get by at night. So that's how I deal with hope primarily. Okay, so it's a hybrid model. Um, Let's talk a little bit some details. So how about about how big is this group that you're meeting with weekly? Yeah, well right now, uh, over the summer, we went from like throughout the normal school year last year, we probably had about six to 10 young men. Okay. And over the summer, uh, we we extended to 25. Okay. And um, where primarily it was just me and my core group, they, my young men were able to go out into their social groups and bring in that next batch. And uh, we just meet up, like over the summer, like in in the hoods around the country, the summer times are the most deadliest times of year. You know, these kids are out of school, they have very few positive outlets to express themselves, and they're kind of left to themselves. Mm-hmm. So I started what I considered a, it is. It is. Yeah, so I started hot. a summer program to go and get these young men during yeah. those hottest times, of, and we could only afford to do it three times a week. But it was better than what, what most young, what most organizations were doing. Certainly. And we targeted young men who were the age of fifteen all the way up to twenty-one. Okay. Yeah. And we said, hey, yo. If they're your friends, hop in the van, yeah, and we on. probably break a lot of law, broke a lot of laws, <laughs> squeezing all these young uh, men into the okay. van to get them where we gotta go. Yeah, but it's like, I rather break a law, getting these young men to safety and positivity and in a sense of community, yeah. than breaking the law, leading them down the wrong track. So we did that three times a week, every week through June and July, and we continued to build a, a sense of fellowship where these young men knew that. You don't need to be in the streets. You don't need to be out there like that. Like, this is your family. And we've been able to support their families. A lot of the young men, their families are struggling to even pay things like water bills and light bills. And I'll use the the funds in my organizational bank account to meet that need. Mm -hmm. So those young men don't have to feel the need to go and sell dope to bring in money to pay bills. So every young man that we, we bring in and we reach, they're the most desperate in our community. And I want to be there for them. If they don't have fathers, I want to be a father figure. If mm. they don't have positive big brothers, I want to be a big brother to them. I want to be whatever they feel they need uh, to 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 reach positive outcomes in their life. Mm. That's wonderful, man. So, how is Inner City Innovators funded? And are there more programs beyond Hope Dealers that you want folks to know about? Yeah, I'll start with the um, programming aspects. We also do community engagement walks where at least two days a week we walk the streets. Okay. Uh, we look for youth who are hanging out and seem like they don't have anything going for themselves. And we offer them mentorship in our Hope Dealer mentoring program. Yeah. And we offer we also offer them opportunities that other organizations in our community are doing. Okay. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. I see. You know, I don't want to be doing Exactly. Yeah. So there may, the Urban League may have a jobs program. We want to point them to the jobs programs that's offered there. There may be uh, something for their family, their parents. We want to be able to plug them into whoever is in our hood trying to do good works. We want to be able to put a plug in for them. And while those organizations may not be have the relevancy to come into these communities and to reach these people, we'll do it for them because we recognize that sometimes it's not a lack of resources, it's a lack of getting those resources to the right people. The connections. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we take that upon ourselves and we also do an anti-violence workshop. Okay. Where we go into churches, community centers, schools, anybody that would have us and we teach a, uh, a workshop what we call SAFE in these streets and we use SAFE as an acronym that I created based on my own experiences growing up in these communities. And the S in SAFE is for, um, I'm forgetting my own um, acronym. Oh, be smart. That's just for be smart. Be smart about who you associate yourself with. 
Uh, the A is for be alert to your surroundings at all times. You know, our young people can be navigating their community, see a fight break out at a corner store, and 20 minutes later go to that same store not knowing if someone's going to come and do a retaliatory act. Right. So it's things that are inherent to them that we need to teach them to pay more attention to because there's been many, many innocent bystanders that were killed just because they weren't paying attention to the social cues that mm. were happening. So we teach them to be smart about who they surround themselves with, alert to their surroundings at all times, and to be the efforts for be fearless about getting themselves out of harm's way. We have a culture where you have to be hard. You know, you have to, uh, you have to pretend that you don't have a weakness. You know, mm-hmm. and so you could be hanging with your friends and know that one of your friends are involved in beef or something like that, and that you know that there's a high probability that something can happen. But you want to be there because you don't want to seem like you're afraid to be there. I had a young man that I mentored. His name was Johnny. And uh, Johnny had finished high school. Uh, he was contemplating going to the military to find a career and just get out of the hood. Mm-hmm. A good kid. You know, he was involved in our work. He attended workshops to uh, provide an answer to the community violence that was happening. But he was walking home with a group of his friends from the store when one of his friends were a target. Mm-hmm. He had beef and Johnny lost his life walking home from the store with a group of his friends. And so we try to teach our young people to be fearless about getting them out of situations that could possibly and potentially cost them their lives. And the E is teaching them to be an example, be an example of what it takes to be safe in the streets. These kids don't have examples that they respect or look to. So we teach the young people that we teach this workshop to, to be that example. So we're a very small organization and we try to focus with laser-like focus on Hope Dealer Mentoring, Community Engagement Walks, and Anti-Violence Workshop. And it's my hope that the young people that I mentor will be the ones leading these workshops and these Community Engagement Walks. Mm -hmm. And to talk about funding, I'd have to give a huge shout out to Anthony of Cities United, the Executive Director, uh, him and Dorian from uh, Keenan Charitable Trust. They literally saved my organization, Mm -hmm. man. Uh, Prior to meeting them, Um, I remember going through a rough time where a lot of what I was doing, I was Ubering and doing Lyft overnight just to sustain myself to be able to mentor these young men. I lost over 20 pounds. I was going into debt. Like, I knew that this this work needed to be happening in my community, but I I couldn't sustain myself to do it. So Anthony brought Dorian down to West Palm, uh, Mayor's assistant Kevin Jones, uh, who's a part of our... um, He's our city lead through Cities United. And uh, he set up a meeting where I was able to tell them about our programs and they miraculously got us a grant. Like most grants, uh, when you're doing a grant, you gotta jump through all these different hoops. Keenan Charitable Trust was very sympathetic to the work I was trying to do and they provided the support I needed to fulfill the uh, grant proposal process, man. And without them, I wouldn't be able to do the work that I'm doing in my community now. And I believe that what they've done with me should be a model uh, for organizations like mine and grantors and funders uh, and philanthropy all across the country. Because you need, like, I'm a firm believer that real change happens when the people who need it lead it. And what they did uh, really empowered that model. And it's the reason why I'm able to do the work I'm able to do now. How have you enjoyed your uh, Cities United ex- experience in general? Uh, we met at a planning lab uh, this year, 2018, um, going through that process with a number of cities from around the nation, and then they went on and did weeks after weeks uh, yeah. more of those. Uh, just talk a little bit about Cities United and, and that kind of engagement with national platforms. 
Oh my gosh, man. Just to speak alone about the planning lab and the conference that we're at, the convening that we're at now, man. Yeah. It's nothing better than being around people that you know are devoted mm-hmm. to the work that you're on. Like, when I'm home and I'm in the trenches, it's a lonely work, man. You know, there's not a lot of people who could identify with the battles that are fighting on a daily basis. Then you get to something like this, and it's like, man, that brother's doing something similar. Right. That brother's fighting it from a, a citywide perspective. That yeah. brother's shaping policy. That brother's a youth growing up in this life. And you're meeting all these different people who are just as passionate and affected by the work as you are. And I can't understate the significance that that has for people like me, man, to be a part of a network of people devoted to ending the harms that we see taking place all over the country. Yeah, ending them, not just addressing them. Exactly. Uh, they're such a good example of having uh, an audacious goal Yeah. that they're not shying away from, that they're right. clear about, and that they're marching towards. Yep. Um, understanding that, uh, and your own testimony bears this out, that the process right. is uh, the most important part. Absolutely. Um, when it comes to self-care and mental health, what has worked uh, for you in your own life, and how do you counsel uh, your young men along those lines? Because let's be let's be real, um, or continue to be real. The experiences that you're mentioning yeah. are serious. Yeah. And I have a, a there's a good um, pastor friend of ours in Pittsburgh uh, who served in the military for some time, and he makes this point that um, a lot of his peers um, and and his own experience has has involved PTSD. But there was at least this notion that uh, he got to come home from war. Mm. And now he is he serves in communities where uh, and is involved with violence prevention uh, intervention work where he is dedicating his life uh, to communities where that's taking place on a consistent basis. Um, but he says for these young people, there is no escape. Right. Um, so it seems to be all, all the much more important. And you talk about the SAFE acronym um, that that comes to mind for me as well. Right. So how do you how do you think about that? That's a tough one, man. One thing yeah. I didn't mention that I do is I respond to shootings. Every time there's a shooting in my community within my city, I respond to it, you know, just to let people know that I'm there. And um, I always feel so overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. I always feel like um, you. it's hard not to lose your wits when you're constantly confronted by community violence. You know, it's often young people that you know or you've worked with in the past. And... I'm not a master at self-care. You know, I probably burned out more times than I found sufficient ways to manage the stress and the frustration that I deal with on a daily basis. But a few of the things that I try to do uh, when I'm in my right mind, and I, because the thing about it, man, is sometimes you don't understand the stress that is affecting you. Hmm. You know, you try to just keep going. Like my community needs me to keep going. I need to just keep doing the work. And you don't realize the ways in which that stress comes out. Like, to this day, and I just put this together probably in the past year that I can't sleep without background noise. Really? I got to have a TV on in the background for me to even go to sleep Mm. because if I don't, I think about a young man that I saw die in front of my eyes. I'll be haunted by thoughts and things like that. So I kind of got to have background noise in the background. And I always wonder, you know, and I'm still wondering this today, like, people know the work we do why isn't there some kind of process or program where people in the mental health profession are offering their services pro bono to people who are doing the kind of work that we do so apart from not having that um in my arena 
something I do for self-care is there's a, a church, a quiet place that I go to to just get away from everything. Mm. I silence my phone. I'll probably take my Bible, if that. And I'll just try to get away from all the noise and just sit in silence and process what's going on within me and yeah. try to bring myself back to a sense of presence, a sense of this is who I am, this is why I'm doing the work, and this is what I need. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the more contemplative, contemplative side of things. Another thing that I'll do is sometimes I'll get a hotel room I pack my PlayStation 4 because I live in the hood that I grew up in. You know, I hear the gunshots. I live like my apartment building sucks. My my landlord is a slumlord by any definition. So sometimes to get away, I'll go and get a hotel room. I'll take my PlayStation 4. I'll plug it up. I'll turn off my phone, close the blinds. I'll just play my game for two days straight just to get away from everything. So a part of my self-care is contemplating and creating space where I could just get away for a while because the hardest thing is for people who live in the situations that they're trying to change. Like, home isn't a getaway. Right. You know? Might not be an oasis for you. Exactly. Yeah. What kind of games are you into? Um, there's this, I think there's this, I forget the name. It's called The Last of Us. Okay. It's like a zombie apocalypse game. Yeah. That's like my favorite game of all time. Like that thing is so realistic, bro. Oh, yeah? Graphics. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I like NBA 2K. Okay. Like, you can get online and play people from all around the country. Right. So, I love that, man, that I get to play a real person somewhere else. Um, what a, I like Grand Theft Auto. Okay. You know, I could just be a criminal. Yeah. You know, I'm reformed in real life. I like to break laws on the game. Yeah. So, that's always good, explore, man. Explore the world. And, yeah, man. Yeah. It's like, that's a that's an outlet. You know, yeah. you get to do things you can't do in the real world. Yeah. And I think that's why kids play games, man. I think so too, and I think I think that uh, it's a tool at our disposal. Yeah. Um, I mean, I hear about uh, games that are helping address different kinds of dementia. Right. Uh, right. Things like that. So I think it's on not necessarily on tap, but a developing resource for folks. Yeah. And I could get on a game and play Fortnite with my young men. Like you know, we're all so plugged in. Like they're like mystery. Like they're making fun of me because I suck at I know. Fortnite. Uh, yeah, I had the same experience. I'm on. Like I'm, I'm there. Like, I'm you know there. what I'm saying? Yeah. It's their peer group. They're right. like their friends, and then it's me. Oh, right. that's my mentor. Like he's like you know you're like the old like you're the old man on the system. Yeah, they'll be like, hey, that's, what's up, that's Mr. powerful. What's bro? up, Mr. J? What's yeah. up, Mr. J? Yeah. I'm like, yo, this is weird. This is a weird Xbox experience. Experience bro, world, that is powerful, bro. <laughs> that that cannot be underestimated. <laughs> yeah, and the, there's community to be had, right? Exactly. It really is. It really is quite something. I think people underestimated a bit, but yeah, you know, things are changing quickly. Well, look, man, I really appreciate it. Um, just wrapping up here, a couple just kind of simpler questions, uh, or maybe not simpler, but um, just quicker questions. Yeah. Um, you reading any good books recently? Anything that you'd recommend to folks? Oh my gosh, bro. <laughs> I'm glad you asked me that. There's a book uh, by this guy named uh, Elijah Anderson, I think it is. Okay. It's called Code of the Streets. Okay. And he probably wrote it in the 90s. But uh, reading that as someone that comes from that situation, man, he was spot on mm. in his uh, estimations of uh, inner city culture and things like that. Mm. And he's an ethnographer, whatever you call okay. those people yeah. that study culture and things like that. Mm. And he was just spot on. I'm going to send him an email this week. I want to meet him, man, because just reading that book and understanding the culture that I just had to adopt and seeing that people knew about this culture way back in the 90s mm. and to see such a lack of reform based on this information yeah. is disheartening. 
but it feels good to know that someone was able to articulate it in an educated way that people on the outside could seek to understand. So that book is called uh, Code of the Streets. And uh, there's another book that I'm reading, and um, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it's by the same author. Okay. Like if you looked at, like if you look him up, Elijah Anderson, you'll see many of his books, and all of them are probably good. But uh, Code of the Streets of the, is the one that I just finished that really resonated deeply with me. And uh, another book, not so related to what I do, uh, but that really inspired me to kind of step outside of the box was by. Uh, it's called The Icarus Deception by hmm. Seth Godin. And um, he probably has nothing to do with the inner city. Like, he's um, he's, a, he's a white guy. Like, he's like he's just on the opposite. But that book, man, and, like, he wrote it. Like, it's about, he says that it's all about making connections. Life is all about making connections. It's not about having all the answers. It's not about fitting into this mold. But it's, it's about being true to yourself and seeking to connect with people, you know? Yeah. And he talks about how society has moved away from this uh, industrial uh, way of doing things to more of a human connection way. So after I read that book, I ran for city commissioner in my city. Hmm. And while I didn't win, it empowered me in a way that I never thought it would because I connected with people. You know, it wasn't about the fact that I was a high school dropout with a GED who dabbled in the drug trade. It was about this young man is passionate about what he's doing and he connects with us. Yeah. And that's how I got a lot of the social capital that I'm able to wield in my city. And it was because of my reading of that book, The Icarus Deception by Seth Golden. That's great. I really appreciate those recommendations, man. Um, I guess I would ask, you know, if you were to give one piece of advice to young people, what would that be? That's a that's a good one, man. I think I would tell them to trust the process. Mm. You know, to everything they're going through is a it's like a weird class that your childhood, adolescence, everything is a lesson. And if you could really look at those lessons as being positive for you and who you're meant to be in this world, yeah. and you can make a difference. Yeah. The problem is too often we look at those lessons and we see them as curses and right. something that forces us down the wrong path instead of the source of our resilience mm. in this world. Yeah. And I want them to look at everything they're going through right now is for a purpose. Everything is for a reason that that is building resilience, is building strength, that they have a testimony and a story that nobody else can tell but them. And that's the reason that they're going through what they're going through, that they are stronger than what they're going through. Because until I started to believe this, I had no purpose in this world. Hmm. But when I started to believe this, I started my own organization. I realized my capacity to affect things on a countywide level. And no one can tell me uh, about myself. I believe in who I am, and I move in that belief because I believe that my pain it, it, it was for a purpose, hmm. and I'm moving, and that's a part of my passion now. It's great, man. Where can people uh, find you online and the work that you're doing uh, and get connected? Uh, you can look me up on Facebook, Ricky Aiken, or you can uh, type in Inner City Innovators and follow our page there, or check us out at www.innercityinnovators.org. Cool, man. Anything we didn't cover you want to talk about? And on your heart? I think that's good, bro. I'm excited that you took the time, man, to really hear my story and get it out there, man. So I love it. Keep doing what you're doing, brother. Um, I see you. I hear you, man. And we need more people like you. Man, I appreciate you, brother. All right. 
Let's sign off then, brother. All right, for sure. Hey, Josiah here again. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. I'll make sure that all of the things we mentioned are linked up in the show notes so you can see the books that he mentioned uh, and be linked direct to Inner City Innovators, uh, Ricky himself, and uh, the work that he's up to. So um, please uh, give me feedback uh, if you like this episode. I'm really interested in how folks are finding it. Um, so much of this project is, is me documenting my own journey and um, you know how having content that I can go and review uh, and be edified by and learn from. And I know that I'm certainly going to spend some time with this conversation uh, and hopefully many, many more uh, future ones with Ricky um, and others like him. So uh, if you like uh, the podcast, if you like uh, this episode and the stuff that you hear, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. Let me know. If there's things that I can improve, uh, things that you'd like to see or any requests, interested in that as well. Um, it's a personal project, but one I'm doing in the public, and so I'd like it to be meaningful for as many people as possible. So anyways, I'll talk to you guys later.